You're listening to WRFI Community Radio from the heart of the Finger Lakes, 88.1 in Ithaca, 91.9 in Watkins Glen, and streaming worldwide at wrfi.org. This is The Scene, and I'm your host, Chantal Thomas. Today we have a very special interview with Eric Miller, an attorney for the victims of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. There are, incredibly, three living survivors of the 1921 massacre. Lessie Benningfield Randall, 107, Viola Fletcher, 108, and Hughes Van Ellis, 101 years old. The Tulsa Race Massacre formed a horrific milestone in the reign of racial terror in the Jim Crow United States, an assault over 18 hours from May 31st to June 1st, 1921, by white mobs against the black community of the thriving Greenwood section of Tulsa, not only with guns, but by aerial attack as well, over dozens of city blocks, leaving dozens, perhaps hundreds, of dead and wounded, some suspected to be buried in unmarked mass graves. The violence also led to massive theft and dispossession, as white mobs looted Greenwood and subsequently brought fraudulent insurance claims while the legitimate claims of black Tulsans were denied. Although the Tulsa police chief was subsequently found guilty of negligence for failing to stop the violence and for conspiracy for freeing automobile thieves and collecting rewards, no one else was ever convicted or punished for any of the human casualties, let alone any of the other devastating property damage. Professor Miller has been involved with the Tulsa reparations litigation for close to 20 years. He teaches criminal procedure and jurisprudence at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. I spoke with him earlier this week. Professor Miller, can you give us the highlights of the Tulsa case? One way of thinking about it is, certainly from a litigation perspective, if we can't make reparations work in Tulsa, then it's not clear where we can make it work because we're faced with one of the most significant incidents of racial violence in uh, certainly against Black people during uh, Jim Crow, but potentially in in American history. Uh, And in the Tulsa race massacre, for those of you who, who don't know, 35 to 40 city blocks or in the black district of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the neighborhoods called Greenwood, were burned to the ground on the night of May 31st to June 1st. At least 300 people, as far as we're aware, died. Uh, The city is supposed to be excavating mass graves where the victims were uh, buried. Uh, As a consequence of the massacre, about... um, 5,000 black people were interned in uh, camps set up in the conference center, the baseball park, the hospital, uh, the local high school. Families were separated. So men were held in one place, women in another, children in another. Uh, about two to 3,000 people fled the city, many of them never to return. Uh, and in particular, the leaders of the black community Uh, were accused of fomenting the massacre and uh, were charged by a grand jury. And so they certainly didn't return. About uh, 20 to 30 people left and never to come back. And one of the reasons why the massacre is important is because Greenwood was 
uh, one of the most financially thriving black neighborhoods in the United States at the time. It rivaled Harlem, certainly, in terms of money. Oklahoma was an oil boom place at the time. And so, you know, it was a major stop in the jazz circuit. There were three hotels, two movie theaters, a hospital, all run by African-Americans. So, so one of the reasons why the litigation is important is because of the scale of the massacre and the, in many ways, the simplicity of the legal arguments. There's no doubt that uh, people were murdered, houses were burned, and people's civil and other rights violated. And so really the only question is uh, whether courts are willing uh, to find a way to grant relief uh, when relief is uh, pretty easy to justify. There's growing awareness of the extent of these kinds of atrocities that were occurring in the not too distant past. And so the discussion around racial justice in the United States often places the timing in the 19th century and these were things that were going on within living memory, and there are still living survivors of the Tulsa race massacre, incredibly, all over 100 years old. How long has this case been been active? How long have you been working on it? So there's two cases that are linked by the same incident. So in 2003, a legal team led by Charles Ogletree, Harvard Law Professor, and uh, including people who had been involved in the reparations for a long time, like um, Adwa Ayatoro, uh, who's now an emeritus uh, professor at the University of Arkansas, uh, but um, was also one of the uh, uh, co-chairs of INCOBRA, which was an, and is a national uh, reparations movement, uh, but also including uh, famously Johnny Cochran, uh, and a bunch of other uh, amazing lawyers. That lawsuit was filed in 2003. And in that lawsuit, we sought individual damages under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution through uh, an enabling statute called uh, 42 United States Code, Section 1983. It's often referred to as Section 1983 litigation. Section 1983 just basically allows you to find some provision of the constitution and sue. And the Equal Protection Clause basically says, if you're denied equal protection of, of the laws, including laws that protect your property and your life, uh, then you can obtain money damages. And of course, if your house has been burned to the ground uh, and you've been injured or your parents have been killed, for example, then you can recover under section 1983. And so that was the lawsuit we brought in 2003. And it was clear that on the merits, we should win that lawsuit. The problem with that sort of litigation is there's a thing called the statute of limitations that says you need to file within two years in the case of, uh, of that lawsuit. And of course, we were filing uh, effectively 80 years after the massacre. And so we had to come up with a reason to explain uh, why we couldn't file and why the federal court should still grant us relief. And so the state had just come out with a 
statute that apologized for the massacre, said it had no legal liability, but also acknowledged that the, there had been a conspiracy of silence for about 75 years after the massacre. And we argued that that conspiracy of silence was the reason that we couldn't file. So, so that was lawsuit number one. And, and so just to repeat, you know, the, we had 125 survivors at that point, all of them over 80, the oldest 103. And um, uh, the claim was that each of them individually ought to get money damages. So that fits uh, sort of fairly clearly within one version of reparations, which is uh, that the survivors and descendants of racial violence uh, ought to receive a direct money payment. The courts uh, refused for various reasons to um, to grant us relief from the statute of limitations. They said we should have filed during the civil rights era because during the civil rights era, everyone knew that black people had been discriminated against. Of course, no one had heard of the Tulsa race massacre, including a number of people uh, who lived in Tulsa at the same time. And those of our plaintiffs uh, who had uh, agreed to file with us, many of them were still traumatized and this was the first time they talked about the massacre in decades. And the court refused to treat that as a reason for suspending the statute of limitations. So that must have been incredibly powerful and also devastating to see living survivors and victims summoning the courage to talk about these painful and traumatic experiences and not receiving they're due from the courts. I think we don't still, as a nation, understand that trauma at all. So intriguingly, when the second round of litigation came about, I can talk about that in a minute, uh, when we filed our, our current lawsuit in 2020, we filed just after the, actually just before the centenary, centenary of the massacre, and right about the centenary, the lead lawyer in the case, uh, Demario Solomon Simmons, who's an amazing civil rights lawyer that works in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was getting tens, if not hundreds of requests from folks to comment on the litigation and the, and the massacre. And so he, he farmed a bunch of those calls off to me. And one of them was a call from someone uh, in Canada, actually, who was a Tulsa native. And the call essentially said something like, I know John Melvin Alexander, the first name plaintiff in our 2003 lawsuit, Alexander versus Oklahoma. And uh, he was like a father to me. And, you know, I thought, oh, this guy's part of the standard, you know, large black family that includes people we call cousins, but who are, you know, friends of friends or whatever. And so I answered uh, his phone call and it turned out that uh, John Alexander, who was one of the first people that I met when I went to Tulsa in 2003, uh, and who was at every meeting that we had, who was really powerfully supportive of the litigation, had worked in this guy's father's house as a as a domestic servant and had effectively helped raise this guy and had never spoken of the massacre 
to this guy who's white. And this guy couldn't understand why John Alexander had suddenly out of the blue, as far as he was concerned, decided to uh, file this litigation. Well, it turned out um, John Alexander had been angry about the massacre for 80 years and ashamed, but also living in this guy's house, terrorized. You know, he's living in the house, if not of a person, and certainly of of a member of, of, of the community that burned his house down and killed his neighbors. And I don't think we really think hard enough about what that experience must have been like for these survivors, uh, many of whom who stayed in, in Tulsa and had to work in people's houses, often seeing their own property stolen and sitting in the living room or the kitchen of the person for whom they were working, unable to speak about this. And it had a larger impact on the Black community in the United States. There's a study that came out of Harvard a couple of years ago that showed that Black patent filing essentially stopped in 1921. And uh, the scholar was like, what happened? And then she realized it was the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Black people, when they heard about this, paused. Uh, It was a national event, uh, but one that quickly became suppressed and forgotten. And so so I really do think it's, it's, it's something that we need to think harder about the sort of social and personal impacts of an event like this on both the local and national Black community in America, because the people still don't know about this massacre and are still struggling to wrestle with its consequences. And I want to ask you to speak about the second lawsuit that you're involved with now, but just to pause for a moment on the term that you used of forgetting, that there's been national forgetting of this era of racial terror that has continued to the present day, but this particular era during Jim Crow somehow being suppressed in national memory and just now seeming to emerge into the national discourse again with uh, the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, with lawsuits like this, again, insisting on a much more extensive history. This is a legacy that continues to the present day. What do you think accounts for that national forgetting? The obvious answer, just structural racism, but how is it that it plays out or what what do you think is is the mechanism by which we all continue to participate in this amnesia collectively i think part of it is so in tulsa certainly the white community mobilized pretty quickly um, especially around the chamber of commerce to silence reports of the massacre and then to engage in a sort of collective communal denial that the massacre happened. And so you can see this happening now, I think, in the anti-critical race theory protests. Uh, And I think we should think of them as political protests to prevent the teaching of Black history in the United States, because I think a lot of 
people, especially white people, find that history too disturbing to their understanding of the way that America works, where, where it turns out the way that America works, it's actually consistently quite violent and violent against uh, people of color. And I mean, if you think about it in, in Oklahoma, you know, the Oklahomans, you know, their nickname is the Sooners. They like to think of themselves as pragmatic folk who've dragged themselves up by their bootstraps by coming to a, an empty land and digging oil wells and, and, and making money. But in order to do that, they had to clear native Americans and other indigenous folks from that land. And it turns out they had to clear a bunch of black folks too. And uh, people don't like to think about that aspect of their history in part because the question then becomes as we're sort of trying to force them to ask in these lawsuits, uh, you know, what do you do when it turns out uh, that you, the money you've made uh, has been made on the backs of what I think we can call ethnic cleansing and genocide. And it turns out that much of American history, especially the way that it celebrates the West, um, has refused to grapple with it, these ideas of you know, violent destruction of people and property. Uh, and it's only now that I think that um, Black and Brown and Indigenous people are, are gaining a little bit more power that, that we're able to force people to confront the nature of that history and ask what ought to be done to right these wrongs. So it's all about power and who has the power to write history and who has the power to determine what counts as a wrong and then what happens when, when we actually start articulating these things as, as wrongs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WRFI. I'm Chantal Thomas, and I'm speaking with Professor Eric Miller about the Tulsa race massacre reparations lawsuit. Professor Miller, you were describing the first lawsuit that you were involved with um, in the early 2000s, and uh, then the second one, which I guess began a couple of years ago now. How did the second lawsuit differ from the first? So the second lawsuit, first of all, it's in state court. The first one was in federal court. We were in the first one claiming a violation of the United States Constitution. This second one is based on state property law. And the property law is called a public nuisance. And um, the easiest way to understand it is, is like this. So um, we're in Oklahoma. So imagine there's an oil well, to pick a classic Oklahoma institution, on your property. And it starts leaking and polluting my property. Uh, I have uh, the right to get you uh, not just to stop polluting my property, uh, but also to clean up the oil that's uh, on my soil. And so the basic idea is that um, if your oil well is polluting a whole neighborhood, then that neighborhood um, has had its rights infringed and that neighborhood can demand that uh, you fix the uh, pollution that you have done. Well, it turns out that fomenting a race massacre is a form of destroying other people's property. And so what we're asking is that the people who fomented the race massacre, the city of Tulsa, the Chamber of Commerce, the county, but also 
people who had destroyed property, property subsequently. So the uh, Tulsa uh, Regional Development Authority that ran a freeway through the middle of the black neighborhood, splitting it up and destroying homes, uh, should fix the mess that they've created. And so that's the basic idea of the public nuisance lawsuit. And part of what we're hoping that fixing the mess looks like is in part restoring land and property, but in, in part uh, restoring the businesses and hospitals and other institutions that were destroyed both during the massacre and in its long, century-long aftermath to effectively re-empower the community of North Tulsa to determine for themselves how things are, are to go for them. Because at the moment, all the money and energy in that community is being, to a large extent, drained out of it because the city of Tulsa refuses to put any real resources in that community. And I think that in, that this litigation actually is important in two ways. One, it focuses on communities and neighborhoods rather than on individuals. But second, Every state has a public nuisance statute. If we can win this lawsuit, then I think it serves as a model, not just for, for Tulsa, but, but nationally. Amazing. There's so much there, not just nationally, but internationally as well. I mean, this lawsuit comes at a time where there's really an emerging dialogue around reparations globally. And folks listening to you speak about this case might discern a bit of an accent and guess that your national origin might be from outside the U.S. So as somebody with a somewhat, let's say, transnational viewpoint, how do you place the Tulsa case in the context of maybe a more a more global dialogue? So I'm Scottish for your listeners, in case they're wondering. I'm actually part Scottish, part part West Indian. So I, I am a descendant of enslaved people myself. And, and you know, part of wrestling with that identity has let, is part of what's led me here in a sort of circuitous way. But, uh, but I think that's a great question. And it's actually a really um, important question right now, because one of the big battles, I think, in the reparations space is between a sort of nationalist versus internationalist understanding of what reparations is. And that all comes out in a couple of ways. One is who's eligible for reparations. And um, as you mentioned, you know, focusing on, on Jim Crow shows that there's a whole bunch of discrimination, often very violent discrimination, uh, displacement of people. So uh, migration within the United States, but also uh, to and around the United States. And I, out of the United States. And so some folks want to focus on eligibility as limited only to American descendants of American enslaved people. Uh, and some people, and I'm in the latter camp, uh, want to focus on eligibility as extending to, and if we're focusing on reparations for, for black people, uh, all black people who are imp impacted by the different uh, wrongs that were done to them. So if we look at the Tulsa race massacre, we have different classes of individuals, some of whom are descendants. So we have a, a diaspora of survivors and their children who are descendants of the massacre and who deserve certainly one set of remedies 
and you can see why direct monetary payments might be important there. But we also have a group of people, some of whom are not descended from the Tulsa Race Massacre, but are Black people who have experienced uh, the aftermath of the Race Massacre and who live in, in North Tulsa and Greenwood. So they're, they're folks who have migrated into Tulsa who are still experiencing the after effects of the massacre, and they deserve reparations, maybe slightly different reparations. And so business districts might help them in ways that it's clearly not necessarily going to, to help people who live in Chicago or Boston or or one of the survivors uh, who died just before the lawsuit uh, lived in France. So so I, I think one of the things that's important to think about in the reparation space is, is this question of eligibility and, and who benefits and recognizing that there are different wrongs that have happened to different groups of people and different and these different groups may have have uh, claims to reparations even though they may not all be uh, slavery based claims the second thing i think that's interesting here you know we can focus a little bit on the caribbean is jamaica which is where my family's from haiti you know, a variety of countries are now seeking reparations at a national level from France and the United Kingdom and so on and so forth. And my worry is sometimes that uh, intergovernmental reparations leaves out the people who need it most. And so, so if the government isn't going to push reparations down to the people, but is just going to keep it at the government level, then I think we can ask questions about whether those sorts of reparations are as effective as they need to be. And and then. One space where this comes out for me really uh, prominently is so the University of Glasgow, which is my hometown, not my home university. Uh, <laughs> I'm an Edinburgh person. Um, uh, the University of Glasgow is, is paying reparations to the University of West Indies uh, and in Jamaica especially. And that's been hailed in Jamaica, I think, as a, as a major step forward. But I wonder, I wonder, because Harvard's doing the same thing. Harvard has just announced that it's about to pay reparations as well. But if reparations remains in the hands of a relatively elite few who go to these institutions, um, uh, then how effective is it really? Don't, don't we want reparations to go uh, as, as deep into uh, the community of individuals wronged as possible? And so I, I want to see... University of West Indies do more, just as I think that um, Harvard is to a certain extent self-dealing by creating programs that focus on research rather than, for example, direct monetary payments or business development. And, and so I think these institutions ought to think about the people in their backyards who they have impacted and, and not rest at the doors of the ivory tower, but, but reach out. Um, as far as they can, to do transformative justice, because uh, that ultimately is what reparations is about, is about um, transitional transformative justice that seeks to change the balance of power, not simply preserve it. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you. You're welcome. This has been fun. Thanks for having me on. For those interested in learning more about the Tulsa Race Massacre, you can find links on the WRFI homepage. This weekend presents an opportunity to observe another important moment in this country's history, the holiday of Juneteenth, a holiday celebrated on the 19th of June to commemorate the emancipation of enslaved persons in the U.S. 
It was first celebrated in Texas, where on that date in 1865, in the aftermath of the Civil War, slaves were declared free under the terms of the 1862 Emancipation Proclamation. The day was recognized as a federal holiday on June 17, 2021, when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. Here in Ithaca and the Finger Lakes region, the Ithaca Southside Community Center will hold its annual Juneteenth celebration from noon to 8 p.m. on Saturday, June 18th. The Genesee Country Village and Museum will also be holding a day of events on Saturday, June 18th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. You've been listening to The Scene, and I'm your host, Chantal Thomas.